quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Being able to leverage other people's resources, I would say, is key to being able to scale very, very quickly. I really do think that's key. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest-running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of the fluffy stuff, and we focus exclusively on commercial real estate. With us today, we've got a multifamily investor. How you doing, John Okocha? Doing amazing. How about yourself? Well, I'm glad to hear that. And the same, I appreciate you asking. A little bit about John. He's a managing principal of Okocha Equity Partners, which is an alternative asset management firm focused on multifamily. His portfolio, well, he's a general partner of over 1,600 units based in Dallas, Texas. His website, OkochaEquityPartners.com. So with that being said, John, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Yeah. So it all started really when I was in high school. A good friend of mine recommended the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read that book and basically changed my mindset on money, finances, investing, and went to my first real estate conference. And I was the first guy back there. I was the first guy back there that bought the marketing materials in order to start my real estate journey. So I started on the wholesale side of things, then moved into being a realtor for investors. And then one of my investors actually asked me if I wanted to come do acquisitions for him. So I started doing acquisitions for him. I started working for another person on the commercial real estate side, on the multifamily side. And we scaled from 20 units to over 2,000 units in less than two years. Wow. Yeah, it was a very, very exciting time. I was their first hire. And being the first hire, I got equity in the deals and yeah, it was amazing. I had an amazing time there. I learned a lot. And while I was there, I noticed the huge need for preferred and mezzanine debt for smaller properties. I would notice that a lot of the sponsors I would know either had trouble raising that one to five million for the deposit, or they had a lot of investors, but wanted to do more deals and wanted to scale. So what I did after that is I actually left the group. And right now I'm actually in the middle of working on having an advisory so we'll be linking funds to sponsors, and I'm also going to be working on developing a fund myself. So those are the two things we're working on currently. A lot to unpack there. Just so I'm clear on what you're currently focused on, and then I want to backtrack back to some of the things that you mentioned. So what are you doing right now? With You said you're working on advice. So you, you're creating a company that does what? So basically we're capital connectors. So we'll connect sponsors to preferred and mezzanine equity sources. Got it. Okay. To preferred and mezzanine sources for the one to $5 million ranges, this would be your specialty. Yeah. We want to specialize in that range because we know there's a huge need for it, but we could go higher than that. For mm-hmm. sure. Is that just an equity broker? Is that basically what you are or am I oversimplifying it? Yeah, debt and equity broker would be the best way to describe it. But we're also getting together LPs in order to actually launch a fund as well. So we're actually going to be doing both. 
Okay, got it. So two areas of focus. One is being an equity broker. And two is launching your own fund and raising money from your LPs. And what is your fund focused on? It's going to be the same. We're going to be focused on the one to $5 million check size for multifamily along the southeastern part of the United States. We're going to be mainly focused on properties, value-add properties, and also development as well. One to $5 million check size. So are you saying that you're buying properties that require one to $5 million in equity? That is correct. Okay. So three to $15 million purchase price properties? Exactly. Around that. Okay. Got it. Okay, cool. That's an interesting niche that you're carving out because I don't typically see someone doubling down on that size of properties. And I see the unique value proposition, your competitive edge by doing that because you've already got relationships with the people who can bridge the gap for those types of properties and fund at scale through your debt and equity broker relationships. Exactly. There's just a huge need for it. Everyone I talk to needs it. Even the guys with large track records because they might be partnered with a huge fund, but the minimum check size would be 7 million. So there's a huge need for it. Mm -hmm. What type of terms should a syndicator expect or a general partner expect if they have a $10 million property that requires 3 million in equity and they can raise about 500,000, but they need 2.5 million. And let's assume it's a, a property that's a value-add deal built in 1990 in a good area somewhere in the Southeast. It really depends. We definitely look at track record. That's something that we definitely look at. And also, like you said, we're very deal-specific. I would say on the MES side, this can be anywhere around the 9 to 10, really just depending on the sponsor. We're very, very sponsor-specific. Okay. So... A preferred return versus MES. I want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly because I think you use both terms, preferred equity and mezzanine debt. In my mind, mezzanine debt is debt and preferred equity is they're getting the upside, but they're not debt. First off, I'm tracking correctly, yes? They said on the preferred equity side that they would be getting a piece of the equity? Yeah. Yeah, well, the way we're underwriting it on the preferred equity side is... It's really very deal-specific, but maybe something like a six or seven current, and then the rest would be accrued, maybe six or seven current, and you know, seven accrued, that sort of thing. So it's really equity structured like debt. That's how we're structuring it for an equity side. So will you just elaborate? You said 6% current and 7% accrued. So it's 6% immediately and then 7% on the back end when it sells? Exactly. Got it, to get them to a 13% for the total deal so that's not too burdensome. They don't start at 13% out of the gate. Exactly. And we're cheaper than most common equity in that aspect because typically if someone was coming in on the common equity side, they might expect more of a return for the money that they put in. Let's use that example. So preferred equity, if it's 6% at the beginning and then 7% accrued for a total 13%, what would that preferred equity group require of the general partner to co-invest and what type of track record at minimum should they have? That's a great question. 
typically we go to 85 to 90% of the total capital stack. So we're expecting them to bring in typically around that 10% into the deal. And as far as track record goes, we'd like to work with people that have at least, I'd say a billion in transaction volume. We'd like to work with anywhere in that billion range. If they're a little bit off, maybe they're at 600 or 700, we'd be happy to work with them. A billion with a B? Yeah, in transaction volume. How many operators need this who have a transaction volume of a billion? You'd be surprised. That would surprise me. I wasn't thinking that would be a qualification. I'm glad you told us that. So yeah, please elaborate. You'd be surprised. There's a lot of people in that space that have investors that can work with, but there's still more deals out there that they would like to do. And if they could find somebody they could work with, they can provide more equity for the properties that they're looking to do. That's less money than they have to ask for their individual investors. If they can find someone who can come in and write one to five deal by deal, that's more money that they can use in more deals. So you come across sponsors who have at least done a billion dollars in transaction volume, but are purchasing properties worth approximately 10 to $15 million who need one to $5 million in preferred equity? Yes. So they'll purchase a property. It could be 50 million or 70 million as well. But for the smaller properties, let's say they'll have a guy that maybe a family office or a hedge fund that they work with, they do a lot of deals with. That fund will only write a check, maybe maximum to around 7 million. So anything lower than that, they can't use that partner on. So that's why we try to stick under that 5 million, that 1 to 5 million. Yeah, I totally get that. I get that there's a need. What I'm surprised about is that the need is coming from groups that have a billion dollars plus in transaction volume. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised that groups that have a billion dollars plus in transaction volume are buying 10 to $15 million properties. And on top of that, not only are they buying these relatively small properties, they are seeking preferred equity to bridge a gap. That surprises me. Yeah, for sure. Huh. How many groups have you worked with like that? There's one group out of Dallas, a huge group, and they've done multiple billions in transactions. And they told me they're the ones who expressed that need as well. I've been to multiple of different events, talked to multiple investors, and there's been a huge interest in it. And they voiced the exact same thing. Hmm. Have you worked with any groups who have used this or are you just, or are you just launching it now? So no one's paid you for it yet. No one's actually like paid me for it yet. Okay. We are working on a deal right now. That's not in that range. It's actually in the $25 million range that we're working on right now, but specifically in that one to five range, nothing yet. Got it. Okay. It makes sense in my mind. And again, I could be off, but it makes sense to 25 million plus deals that these groups with at least a billion dollars in transaction volume would be seeking preferred equity to bridge a gap. But I can't think of any groups that I know, but I'm sure you know of more groups than me that would have that track record, but yet still be seeking the million to 5 million in preferred equity for a $15 million deal. If the qualifications were you have to have 50 million in transaction volume, then that would make more sense. But it's interesting. You just talked about preferred equity. Then on the mezzanine 
debt side, you said nine to ten percent earlier. We just elaborate more on what is mezzanine debt and how is it different from preferred equity and why would someone choose mezzanine over preferred equity? Yeah, definitely. On the mez side, typically what it is, it's just a straight payment. So it's just a straight payment. So 9% over the course of the deal. So it's essentially, it's just a, it's a second loan. Got it. It's more expensive than preferred equity on the front end, but not on the back end. Exactly. Um, so what's the thought process that investors should think through when they're considering either mezzanine debt or preferred equity? I would say looking at the cash flow of the property, is it able to support that 9%? If it is, and it makes sense to do so, I'll definitely go for it. On the prep side, is the cash flow in your reserves, is that able to take care of that 6% on the prep side? And then when you go to refi the property, will you be able to cash out and buy out the preferred equity? On the preferred equity, if the property is not generating 6%, and let's assume that it's 6% preferred out of the gate and then 7% accrued, like the example you used before, can part of that 6% be accrued to a later date? That is possible, but it really just depends on the agreement. It really depends on the agreement between the sponsor and the investor. That's something that we're pretty flexible on. It really just depends on the relationship, I would say. Yeah. Is it common to accrue it? Because right now it's tough to find deals that are cash flowing 6% out of the gate if they're value-add deals. So I would imagine that would be fairly common now, but maybe not 10 years ago. Yeah, that's something that we're seeing a lot now, especially on the development side. Sure. Okay. Let's talk about your 20 units to 2,000 units in less than two years as the first employee for the group. What type of properties were being purchased? We were purchasing value-add properties, multifamily properties in Texas and also in uh, Oklahoma. And what size range were those properties? The first property that we bought, I was actually not with the group. It was 27 units. But as soon as I joined, I found a 206-unit property in Oklahoma. So we purchased that. And then we purchased a five-property portfolio in Houston, which is about 1,250 units in Houston. So there was that. And then right after that, we purchased uh, another property, I believe in Atlanta. That put you around the 2000 mark. What was something that surprised you about that experience? Going from 20 units to 2000 units, like, oh man, looking back on it, it's not surprised and interesting. Just like, man, that was an aha. I would say partnerships are key. At the time when we had 27 units, we didn't have a huge track record with brokers. So we partnered with somebody that had over 2,000 units. So when I would call brokers, since they were our partners and we had the permission to, we combined our schedule of real estate because we were buying deals together. So when I would send a schedule of real estate, they would see over 2,000 doors on the schedule and feel more comfortable sending us properties. So... Mm -hmm. Being able to leverage other people's resources, I would say, is key to being able to scale very, very quickly. I really do think that's key in any Mm -hmm. business. I love that. And what was the structure of that partnership? As far as the partnership goes, it was on the loan. They raised most of the money, and then we would manage most of the construction. And what was the split between them and your group? It was an 80-20 split. 
they got 20% or 80%? They got 80%. They got 80%. So they had the money in the balance sheet and you all found the deal and executed. Exactly. And then we handled the construction as well. So we got paid on the construction side as well. When did you decide, hey, this has been great, but I'm ready to go move on to something else? So even before working for them, I had an itch for private equity, just large private equity real estate. And I would go to these events and I didn't have any money at the time, but I would figure out a way to go to these $3,000 events in New York and California. And what I would do is I would volunteer for them. And they gave me a lot of exposure because I met people with billions under assets. I was talking to people that like family offices, talking to different hedge funds. And it just made me realize that it was all possible. So just being in that environment and talking to people in that environment and then basically telling me like, hey, they're not anything special. <laughs> you, <laughs> yeah. you, you can do it too, <laughs> yep. that sort of thing. But I would say the thing that really got me was after we purchased the 200 units. So we had about maybe 220 units under management at the time. Mm-hmm. And I went to this event in LA and I was at the Omni. And I remember there was a group of us that walked to the, I think to the outside of the hotel or we were all having wine and stuff like that. And I just remember there was a lady sitting next to me and she looked like she was maybe about around 30 or something. Mm-hmm. And I was asking her about herself and she was like, well, I, I work for this group and we raised capital and we spun out of Blackstone. I was like, oh, really? She's like, yeah, we spun out of Blackstone and she was asking me about myself. So, oh, you know, we you know we purchased more value add, multifamily, BMC. And she's like, oh, no way. We just raised a billion dollars for a group just like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> when I heard that, I just knew there was just more. Yeah. Ever since then, I've always had my ears and eyes open. I've always wanted to have my own fund, but I took it more serious after hearing something like that. And then I started going to emerging manager programs and emerging manager events. I just came from an event about one or two months ago and Henry Kravis was up there from Mm -hmm. AKR. There was more than one billionaire in the room just casually talking to people. And I'm like, okay, (laughs) I want to be a billionaire. So I should be in this room. And I think the best way to scale to that would be to have a fund. So I got to figure this thing out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. That's awesome. And then how soon after that initial conversation was a couple years after that? Because I know you ended up buying that larger portfolio with that company. I would say maybe about two years after that. Initially, what I was planning on doing is trying to see if I could start a fund with the company. That's actually what Mm -hmm. I was planning on doing. And I guess differences in goals and things like that. You know, it was, it was per- I mean, they're great people, amazing people. But I saw what happened during COVID and I was like, this is a recessionary period. So I'm, I'm just going to go for it. Good for you. And what's been the biggest challenge since you've taken that leap? I would say just navigating a different space because it really is a different world. So just navigating a different world and just understanding the dynamics, understanding how people move a little bit different. Just different small things like that. We're going to do a lightning round, but first, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Hang out with people that have what you want. Are you part of a mentorship group or a mastermind group? 
I am right now. It's not really real estate focused. It's mainly just personal development focused. Nice. Uh, but I do plan on joining. There's a group called Reek. It's an Afro-Latina and I believe women minority group. Mm-hmm. Well, and their main goal is to get people in that segment of society to be fund managers. What's the group again? You said REEK? REEK. So it's a R-E-E-C. Okay, cool. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right. First quick word from our best ever partners. When it comes to scaling your real estate business, is lack of capital holding you back? Raising private capital on demand can be a major challenge, but you can get the knowledge and tools you need to succeed when you attend Dana Cornell's four-week Raise Capital Masterclass Live. After starting out with no capital or relationships, Dana has raised over $1 billion twice in the past 20 years. And he has made it his mission to share the best of what he's learned with business owners and investors like you. You can learn more at danacornell.com forward slash best ever. Dana's Raise Capital Masterclass Live allows you to immediately unlock and raise capital on demand, drastically increasing your business's growth. If you're ready to take your business to the next level, go to danacornell.com forward slash best ever to enroll today. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. What's the best ever book you've recently read? Miracle Morning. Best ever way you'd like to give back to the community? It would be speaking with young adults about finances, going after their dreams, that sort of thing. And how can the best of listeners learn more about what you're doing? They can reach out to me on Instagram. That's one of the best ways. You can reach out to me at johnnyequity.com or you could just send me an email. My email is john at acochaequitypartners.com. That's J-O-H-N at O-K-O-C-H-A equitypartners.com. John, it's been a pleasure talking to you and learning about your journey I'm grateful for our conversation. I hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk again soon. I really appreciate that, Joe. Thanks for having me.